Welcome to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. If you listen to this podcast, that means it must be a Wednesday. Why? Because every Wednesday we bring together current and former journalists, talk about some of the biggest headlines that occurred within the last week. I'm the one who picks the headlines. I ask the journalists to go ahead and comment, cut through what's being written, and help us understand what's going on. So we look for straight talk and salty language, i.e., is permissible. Who do we have this week on our roundtable? First one we have is our rotating journalist, who is David Lyons. David is financial writer over at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. He's been on the ground as a reporter in South Florida since the 1980s for disclosure. I actually worked for David uh, probably 15 years back. I was a banking reporter at the Miami Daily Business Review. So it's a pleasure to have David Lyons. What's going on, Mr. Lyons? Well, more than enough. We've got a broad spectrum to talk about. So it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. David, you're fantastic. Love having you on. Hey, tell us, um, how's it going with the vaccine? Last time we were on, you were talking about getting vaccinated. Are you double vaccinated? Are you running amok out there in uh, uh, the world now that uh, hopefully you're vaccinated? I am double vaccinated, but I'm not running amok. I'm following all the protocols and being very careful. (laughs) Fantastic, fantastic. And who else do we have? We have a gentleman who is a reporter north of 25 years in the state of Florida, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. He Right now he runs a public relations and marketing firm here in Miami. It's called Groose Communications. That is Jean Groose. What's up, Jean? Peter, always great to be here. Love having you on. You always have some interesting insights, and you make some fantastic predictions. So glad to have you. And then finally, one of our other stalwarts is a gentleman who used to write about white-collar crime in publicly traded companies for the South Florida Business Journal. Right now he does public relations and marketing, uh, primarily related to health care and wellness. But, it's, uh, you know, basically he's a pen for hire to take the, uh, you know, the phrase used by one of our other rotating journalists. This is John <laughs> Fackler. What's up, Mr. Fackler? Uh, I've got my pen ready. Uh, glad to be back to the, uh, along with the uh, unauthorized podcast. <laughs> now, now, Mr. Mr. Fackler, um, uh, we did a real estate players profile on you that appeared on Friday, and we were talking about the fact that Miami was declared by the feds to be the most, uh, to, to be number one on the ranking of the fraudulent cities around the United States. Uh, it was a fascinating podcast. Um, anybody who hasn't heard it, I'd encourage them to go ahead and uh, check it out. Uh, a little bit over an hour or so, but you, you had some great insight. Headline is something the effect that Miami named the U.S. fraud capital uh, thanks to a hotbed of fraudsters, hustlers, and white-tailed criminals. It's a fantastic uh, listen um, if you have some time. So, so guys, um, why don't we get into the COVID numbers? Um, then we're going to take a commercial break, and then we'll get into our six uh, articles. So what do we got going on on the COVID numbers? And keep in mind, we've been uh, uh, tracking these COVID numbers every week, all the stats we have here. They're all coming from the Florida Department of Health COVID-19 dashboard. They're updated daily, so I'd encourage anybody who wants to check out the numbers, go ahead. Go to that website, check it out. Now, these are the official numbers. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the accurate, most accurate numbers, because keep in mind there was a person who was in charge of um, uh, – there was a data scientist who basically had a falling out with the state. Um, all kinds of issues going on related to that. She claims that the, uh, the numbers aren't exactly on the up and up uh, because, uh, you know, the Florida administration is trying to uh, keep them lower so the situation doesn't seem as, um, you know, as desperate as this. But um, let, let, me, let me tell you what the official numbers are. So, and we're recording this on uh, Monday, the 12th of April. This podcast will uh, come out on Wednesday, the 14th of April. 
So what do we got? In the state of Florida, 2.1 million cases, 2.1 million cases, 34,056 are dead, and there's been 87,024 people hospitalized in the state of Florida. Now, on the case count, in South Florida, which is comprised of Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach counties, 809,550. So 809,550 is how many people have caught uh, the COVID in Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach counties, with 455,100 in Miami-Dade. 22700 in Broward County and 133700 in Palm Beach County. Those are cases. Um, overall, South Florida represents about 38% of all cases in the state of Florida. Now, on the death count, uh, 34,056, as I mentioned, have died in the state of Florida, with 11,400 in South Florida, comprised of just under 6,000 in Miami-Dade, 2,700 in Broward, and 2,700 in Palm Beach County. I mentioned last week that Broward County finally surpassed Palm Beach County in terms of the number of deaths. So Palm Beach County always had been ranked number two. Now it's ranked number T, uh, number three. And um, it's not a surprise based on population, but for the longest time, for the longest time, Broward was in the third spot. But now uh, numbers are going up there. A number of dead has gone up. Now, finally, hospitalizations. 87,000 people have been hospitalized in the state of Florida with 29,000 in South Florida, 12,900 in Miami-Dade, 9,600 in Broward, and 6,500 in Palm Beach County. So those are the latest uh, COVID numbers. Anybody want to comment? Anybody want to offer any thoughts? Yeah, I'd just like to jump in here. Just keep an eye on that number of cases is sticking up, not just in Florida, but nationwide. So that's something to keep an eye on. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, John, any comments? Um, no, I mean, but but yeah, the, the, hopefully uh, we get we get vaccinated quickly. Yep, yep, yep. David. Okay, hearing nothing, guys. Let's go ahead and we'll take a commercial break. And the other side of the break, we're going to get into our first three articles. Stay tuned. This is Peter Zaluski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Before I started doing these podcasts, I basically was in the business of being a licensed real estate broker, a contributing um, columnist for the Miami Herald, as well as the Miami Real Deal, but also expert witness work in consulting. So if you are looking for an expert witness or if you're looking for consulting services, a straight talk perspective as to what's going on in a particular marketplace, a building, or what happened previously for whatever your situation is, whether you are a, an attorney, whether you are an institutional fund looking to invest, or whether you're a lender who's trying to come up with some sort of a strategy and approach uh, for your lending committee going forward, I just might be able to help you. To get a hold of me, please uh, reach out to Peter at condovultures.com. That's Peter at condovultures.com. Or give me a call to the office at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. I got David Lyons. He's a financial writer from the South Florida Sun Sentinel. I got John Bruce, who used to be a journalist for 25 years, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. Right now he has his own public relations marketing firm called Bruce Communication. And I have John Feckler, who worked over the South Florida Business Journal. And right now he does public relations and marketing for his own firm. So, guys, let's get to the stories. We're going to start off with story number one. This is coming from Business Insider. And I want to start off with uh, Mr. Fackler. Mr. Fackler, um, here's what we got. Here's the headline. Again, Business Insider. Headline, people have stopped paying their car loans, and it shows millions are struggling in this economy. Let me give you a couple key points that are identified by the story. Point number one, roughly 9% of subprime auto borrowers were more than 60 days delinquent in the fourth quarter. 
Point number two, such borrowers are at the highest risk of default and tend to hold vulnerable financial positions. And point number three, the government throws student loan interest and evictions, but there's little relief for those with auto loans. Mr. Fessler, if you've got a job or if you're trying to live your life and you can't afford Uber Eats, uh, kind of like the wealthy and the bougies like you, um, your car is dependent and it's critical to your lifestyle. If somebody can't pay their, their, their auto loan, that means they could get repoed. And if it gets repoed, that means these people's lives might come to a screeching halt. Am I getting this right or am I getting this wrong? And what's your take on this story, Mr. Beckler? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I think this, um, this is very predictable. Uh, we've, we've uh, touched on this earlier, uh, in an earlier episode where what happens after the evictions and the moratoriums and, um, you know, what's the next level of debt, uh, challenges. And everybody was quickly talking about credit cards, you know, what's going to happen then. People won't pay their credit cards. But when you think about it, um, logically, the next level of debt is auto loans. What's the most expensive thing after a house that people have to, are contending with? It's their auto loans. So this, in a way, was kind of predictable, um, even in advance of credit card challenges. So you know, this is a really bad sign uh, going forward. Uh, will things turn around? The question is, they will, but when is a bigger, uh, a bigger matter? I think going forward. So um, yeah, this is actually very predictable. Now, 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 Jean, you, you used to write about finance uh, during your journalism days. Let me read a couple of graphs out here, and then I want to get you to sort of give the, um, uh, you know, scratch the uh, or, or, or rub the, uh, you know, the chin and opine, if you will. Here, here's what the story says. So the pandemic's uneven economic fallout is now showing up in car loan payments, especially in their absence. More than 9% of subprime auto borrowers, those classified as having higher risk of default, were over 60 days delinquent in the fourth quarter of 2020, according to TransUnion data cited by the Wall Street Journal. That means a lot of people just can't pay off their car loans right now. That share is the highest since 2005, just before a wave of mortgage default sparked the global financial crisis. Separately, 10.9% of subprime borrowers with car loans were more than 60 days overdue in February, up from 10.7% in January, and a six-straight monthly gain. John, is this a uh, bellwether as to how the economy is really doing rather than this stock market, which continues to hit record highs? Yeah, I mean, maybe. But look, you know, the, the car manufacturers and the finance companies were super aggressive in lending out money to move the metal. You know, you, you had to move the cars off the lot and and these luxury cars, they were just, you know, financing them uh, to borrowers that perhaps uh, were already stretched before the pandemic. And now you had the pandemic and this happens at every downturn. Every downturn, you know, the auto lo- the auto lenders have like, oh, they 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 put out too many subprime loans, and you get this massive wave of defaults. This happened during the last downturn. You may remember, like, you could get like, you know, nearly brand new F one fifty trucks, you know, because you know th- yep. these these people, these guys were borrowing more than they should have, and the finance companies and the auto manufacturers were only too happy to lend you, you know, as much as you wanted to buy that $60,000 truck all tricked up, you know. And um, so what happens in a downturn? You lose your job. You can't pay for that expensive car or the the fancy truck. And, yeah, this is what happens during every cycle. I mean, it's it's um, you could see it coming, you know. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting. Last go around 2013, 
I had a car with close to 100,000 miles, and, and I will declare I am not a car guy. Um, I went in the CarMax to say, okay, what can I sell this car for? It was like a Hyundai Sonata, you know, beat it to hell. I was going to have to put new tires on. I was going to have to do a whole overhaul, blah, 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 blah. They offered me eight grand for it. And I was like, shit, I'll take this money. I took the money, and I said, okay, let me figure out what I want. At the time, they had something called car to go which was paid by the minute, and then Uber came in. And since then, I never went returned to any type of car. So um, I remember the last time we were in this situation, people had to buy used cars because they didn't have the financing uh, criteria, the credit, if you will, to go ahead and buy new cars. So I just wonder if you know how it's going to play out going forward. Um, Jean, let's go to you with story number two. This is coming out of the Tampa Bay Times headline. Florida Senate passes property insurance revamp. Now, if you guys remember last week, we were talking about insurer, private insurer who that went belly up and the state had to step in and take them over. So um, that's sort of the, you know, the, the context. So again, headline, Florida Senate passes property insurance revamp. Uh, subhead private insurers are grappling with large financial losses that have led to rate increases. Some Democrats argue that proposed changes would hurt consumers and don't guarantee rates will decrease. John, um, what do you make of that? Is the state of Florida, are they going to do right, the legislators, are they going to do right by the citizens, or are they going to do right by the uh, campaign contributors, which tend to be the insurance companies? What, uh, what say you, uh, John, based on your history of being in Florida and writing about finance and knowing about the insurance industry? It's the never-ending crisis since Hurricane Andrew, back and forth. I mean, this thing has been going on for years and years and years. And um, the last go-round, citizens unloaded all these policies to private insurers that were that were that didn't have enough capital. And lo and behold, we've had a bunch of defaults because – and now the, now the uh, legislators are blaming the lawyers – you know, for for all the losses. And um, so, you know, this, it's a never ending uh, circus. Uh, every few years in Tallahassee, this happens. And here we go again. Nice, nice. Uh, uh, David, I want to get you to comment. Let me read a graph or two out of the story. It's a Senate minority leader, Gary Farmer, a Democrat on Lighthouse Point, which is a, basically a suburb of Fort Lauderdale. He accused insurers of, in quotes, cooking their books plain and simple. End quote. He said Florida went 10 years without a major storm and insurers were swimming in profits. Quote, this crisis is manufactured, said Farmer, a plaintiff's attorney who's frequently critical of insurance companies. It's flat out manufactured. Mr. Lyons, we haven't had a storm roll through here. I guess 2017, 18, what do we have? We had Maria. Um, you know, there was some flooding and things like that, but we didn't really have any kind of hurricane damage. What, what do you make of this? Is Mr. Farmer on Lighthouse Point, is he correct with the insurance companies are trying to, um, you know, gin their profits, or is there some legitimacy to this? What, what say you? Well, obviously, insurance companies want to certainly have a profit um, target that they want to hit every year. Uh, but, you know, Mr. Farmer is a longtime plaintiff lawyer <laughs> who, has, uh, who, has, who, has, who has the plaintiff's far uh, interest uh, uh, in mind. So, um, look, I, uh, the, the, the pro previous um, comments were absolutely right. This has been an an, almost an annual event in which, uh, <clears throat> in which um, you know, insurance companies, uh, you know, say they've been getting jobbed by uh, unnecessary lawsuits, um, you know, mainly because, you know, many of the costs uh, that have been uh, turned over to, uh, you know, homeowners have, uh, not the cost, but, you know, the, the situation in which uh, a roofer comes along and, and picks up um, and picks up responsibility for the job, 
uh, you know, the rights, uh, you know, for any litigation that might be filed, you know, are essentially turned over to the roofer. You know, the roofer is, is, I mean, <clears throat> is the one that gets, uh, you know, to, to essentially pick up, um, you know, as much money as possible and, you know, issuing the estimates and, and things of that nature. <clears throat> and, you know, the insurance companies are saying, look, you know, we, we really don't know what the, what the end game is going to be until the job is done. And then we see these exorbitant costs in their, in their way out of bounds. And then, of course, when people go to court, um, you know, you know, the winning side often gets what's known as a so-called cost multiplier for attorney's fees. And, uh, the insurance companies claim that um, and, and that the insh- that the attorney's fees are are way out of whack, uh, you know, along with uh, the cost of um, uh, repairing the roof. So essentially, the Senate bill did a couple of things. They they tried to uh, you know cap the amount of money that uh, the attorneys can earn, and number two, <clears throat> you know, cap uh, the amount of money that uh, homeowners can get reimbursed for. I guess it was seventy percent for um, you know, a ten-year-old. Um, what was it? A ten-year-old um, tile roof, uh, and then forty uh, percent for the cost of you know fixing um, uh, a so-called you know clay roof or whatever. So you know, essentially, they're trying to put uh, the Republicans are trying to do what the Republicans have always done, and that's you know to cap you know the the liability. Um, um, you know, against uh, the business, and and to you know make sure that uh, the attorneys uh, don't make a lot of mo- <clears throat> a lot more money than the Republicans think that they deserve. So the House has to pick this up, and yeah, you know, how many more days we have in the legislature? Uh, there have been various and sundry compromises put together to uh, um, you know fix this over the years, and the legislature has failed at every term. So I, I I don't know you know if any of the vagaries of this Senate bill are are going to uh, pass muster in the House um, you know because uh, I don't know where they got the seventy percent figure or the forty percent figure for you know limiting <clears throat> reimbursements uh, to the homeowners but uh, you know clearly I'm sure that there are going to be a number of people who think that those figures are arbitrary but uh, you know I think there are a lot of people in Tallahassee who think that something's got to be done at some point. And uh, you know, citizens claimed that they got ended up with a hundred thousand policies uh, uh, on their books because you know private insurers uh, you know, wouldn't you know take these claims, and uh, they're sitting there with uh, a lot of potential you know losses if a storm does pass through. And you know, obviously we haven't had a, a serious storm hit the eastern coast of Florida, which is uh, advantageous, but. Uh, there's not a big hurricane season forecast, so who knows what's going to happen. And, and Dan, for anybody out there who's listening, if you just moved to Florida from New York or California or any of these places and you bought a house, eh, you better uh, start to learn about insurance because insurance becomes a critical factor, which is why some people, I would say, go into condos. So um, uh, that's, that's my two cents. Uh, story number three, David, we're going to start off with you. Why? Because you're the one who wrote the article. It comes out of the South Florida Sun Sentinel. Uh, it appeared in March uh, for disclosure, but I thought it was an interesting story. You were on here, so I wanted to see if you could maybe provide some comments on it. So, uh, David, I'll read the headline, and then anything you can sort of provide in terms of insight, we'd love to hear. And then I'm going to ask Mr. Fackler to go ahead and make a comment. So um, the headline, David, is 
If you've hit a wall in the search for a home, consider these ideas. And you spoke to David, you spoke to a number of different brokers who are actively involved in the uh, single family house market down here in South Florida, and they came up with some tips. So what can you share with the listener in terms of if they're looking for a house, what should they be doing? Because they're probably finding it's a pretty tight market because there's not as much uh, inventory on the market for a variety of reasons. So what, what, what can you share with them, uh, Mr. Lyons? Well, that's very true. Uh, the inventory is uh, so tight that uh, – you know, more often than not, cash buyers are winning the day um, uh, because they're offering a lot more money than somebody who is trying to take out a mortgage. So, you know, these brokers, uh, the brokers I spoke with, um, you know, a, a couple of them are sympathetic uh, luxury brokers <laughs> who are happy to see, um, you know, <laughs> who are happy to see their seller clients, um, you know, get get the cash deal. And, uh uh, you know, the one problem that so many people, particularly first-time buyers, are handicapped. You know, they don't have access to the multiple um, to the uh, to the listing system, <clears throat> and uh, you know, they, uh, the bottom line these days, though, even though you know it sounds like we're pandering to the brokers, they better find a good, decent broker who knows the neighborhood in which you're operating, so that you know, because they, you know, they all said, well, we all talk to each other. <laughs> we know what's coming down the pipe before uh, something might hit the market. And so, you know, let, hit your wagon, you know, to one of us who are experienced uh, brokers so, so we can, because you know, we have the lay of the land, so to speak. And it's, uh, it's a hard game to win if you're out there, you know, independently. And, um, and you know, the question, you know, one of the questions we had was that, you know, there are some academics that say that the South Florida market is overvalued by nearly 20%. And 20? The question, yeah. And uh, people like Ken Johnson at FAU uh, and his counterpart at FIU. <clears throat> and the question was, if you buy now, is there a good chance your home will lose value? And uh, the brokers say no. Um <laughs> it never goes down in South Florida, David. It only goes it's, up, no? <laughs> that's right. These homes are turned over fast. The lower the inventory, the more the turnover. The more supply of inventory results in less turnover. So, um, and a lot of people, obviously, uh, of course, you know, one broker said he doesn't think the market is a value is overvalued by twenty percent, and um, um, obviously there are a number of. Um, there are a number of uh, homes that are being sold way above mer- uh, purchase price, way, way above the appraised value. In fact, there are a lot of appraisers who will not, um, you know, appraise a, a home for you know well above the neighborhood, uh, uh, you know, level of appraised value. So, uh, you know, that's why you're seeing the number of cash deals uh, taking hold. So, you know, there's going to be a continued shortage of inventory. Homes are being purchased above the asking price. And uh, one gentleman said that, you know, it's safe to say that in the South in general, I don't see an indicator showing that if you buy now, there's a good chance you will lose value. All I see is positive benefits. <clears throat> and um, so these folks think that, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, a continued upside. Uh, you know, one suggestion was to you know, try to find an off-market home. Um, you, know, there, you know, that involves door knocking, of course, but, you know, an agent, as I said before, you know, has who's well networked in, you know, can find out what's going to hit the market before uh, a home is listed. So, um, but, you know, clearly sellers are, 
in the driver's seat, and uh, it's tough to get uh, into a bidding war right now unless uh, you know you've got cash <laughs> and that you you, know, you you can hold out against the other guy. Uh, so it's it's kind of a difficult uh, position you know for people to be in right now, particularly if they're first first time home home buyers. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, John, let, let me get your comments, and I want you to provide some context. Mr. Fackler, <laughs> you've told us on this podcast uh, regularly that um, uh, back in the last go-around in the 2000s, um, decade ago, uh, basically you would show up at a place, there would be offers sitting on the table uh, that had been written up and submitted. Now they're probably emailed in. You felt just pressure to go ahead and pull the trigger. Uh, ultimately, you got into something and yeah, you might have overpaid uh, uh, just a little bit. I'm wondering, uh, can you share any uh, suggestions as to what you think today's buyer ought to be factoring in if they're out there and they're looking? And then what about that possibility that some brokers had mentioned in David's article, that the prices never go down, they only go up, and it's only clear sailing ahead? And I say that as we're less than two months away from hurricane season. What say you, Mr. Peckler? Uh Yeah, I would definitely say do your due diligence before purchasing. Um, be mindful of the market. Do not pull a trigger like I did. We've mentioned this on several programs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a little starting to get embarrassed now that I did that. But in that situation, it's very easy to get caught up in the panic um, scenario uh, where you're going to lose out. Um, I think some of these suggestions David mentioned are really, really good. Um, got to gotta have a broker, someone who's experienced with your specific neighborhood. Um, you, you know, you, you want to you really do your due diligence there. Also, any kind of off-market uh, initiatives might be interesting uh, to see if you can sort of uh, check out the market before something goes goes to the market, I should say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you got, you've got to, you know, uh, chances are, that when, once I heard that it's already over, 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 overpriced the market and that chances are when you buy it's going to go down, was eerily reminiscent of my situation back in 08. And, 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 Mr. Fackler, um, uh, uh, looking back, not to just keep beating a dead horse, but I love to. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it can be a complex here. <laughs> looking back, do you think it would have behooved you to uh, rent instead and be patient rather than going all in um, uh, the way you did it? I mean, just retro. Or, or were, were there advantages to sort of doing it the way well, you did? And. Well, I, I, th I think, yeah. And I've been saying that on this program that I would probably never buy again as long as I live. I, you know, uh, the sheer panic and, and fear has turned me into a renter. But I think another important thing is to when you go to contract, in my situation back then, there's a stipulation that you could not um, you could not sell within two years back in the day. And I don't know if that's the situation now with contracts. Uh, I'm not sure what the term is, since I'm not a real estate guy, but uh, uh, flipping. It was an anti-flipping measure in the contract. So if you get jammed up like I did, where the market's quickly going down, uh, and you can't sell your house in two, for two years, you know, you're going to lose money on that. And you're going to wind up, you know, giving it away or going into foreclosure. So, you know, I, I think it's important for buyers to look at those contracts, make sure there's no anti-flipping uh, 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 stipulations within the contract. Uh, let, Great point. For example, you know, that you can't flip for two years. Uh, I think this way we, it's a little bit more of a safeguard for buyers. 
Got it, got it, got it. Okay, fantastic uh, insight, guys. Well, we'll go ahead. We'll take our commercial break. On the other side of the break, we got three more stories, including, including an eviction that went bad and led to a, a tenant's death. We're also going to talk about moving to UDB. Everybody out there saying, what the hell is the UDB? Well, we're going to tell you. We're also going to talk about a brand-new automobile themed, well, I don't know about theme, but trademarked or marked uh, condo called the Bentley. So stay tuned. We'll get into it on the other side of the break. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Back in 1995, I got my real estate license, but I didn't practice for a number of years simply because I was writing about real estate as a journalist. 2006, I broke out and I launched a company called Condo Vultures. The idea was to try to use information, uh, data, and know-how to try to get the best deals on behalf of buyers. So if you are a buyer and you're looking for a deal, you're looking to try to understand the condo market in the Tri-County, South Florida area, myself or my team are here to help you to get a hold of us. Please call us at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. If you're enjoying the Condo Vultures podcast and you want more information, but this information in the written word as well as charts, why not sign up for the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report? To do so, go to condovulturesrealty.com. Slightly below the main banner and logo, you will see a sign-up box. It's called the South Florida Distress Market Intelligence Report. Sign up. Simply enter your email address, hit subscribe, and lo and behold, every week you'll be sent a newsletter giving you the latest updates on what's going on in the distress market in South Florida. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. We talked about three articles that just occurred that uh, provided some great insight as to what's going on. Now we're going to talk about another three articles. Um, these are going to be a little bit closer to home, and they're going to be focused primarily on real estate. So uh, who do I have? I have David Lyons. He's a financial writer over at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. And for disclosure, he was my boss at one time, uh, learned a lot, and I enjoyed working under him. Also, I have Jean Groose. Jean was a journalist north of uh, 25 years. And right now he has his own public relations marketing firm called Bruce Communications. And then John Fackler. John uh, used to cover white-collar crime and publicly traded companies for South Florida Business Journal. Right now he does public relations and marketing. By the way, if you haven't um, heard the podcast on Friday, which is the Real Estate Players Profile, it's a one-on-one with Mr. Fackler. We're talking about all the scammers uh, that basically tend to come to Florida and why they come John used to write about it, so he's got some great first-person accounts with some of the uh, the hustles he's heard along the way. So I'd encourage everybody to check out that podcast, which appeared on um, on Friday. Uh, John Fackler, let's start off with you. Uh, this is coming from Channel 7 News, Miami. This is a Fox affiliate down here, WSVN. Headline, police identify woman killed during eviction at Brickell High Rise. Anybody who doesn't know Brickell, it is the most desirable place in Greater Downtown Miami for a condo based on pricing. So somebody was getting evicted, and lo and behold, it went bad. John, here's the first couple of graphs, and give us your comment. Police have identified the woman who was shot and killed after they said officers were forced to return fire while they served an eviction notice in Miami's Brickell neighborhood. Miami-Dade police said 40-year-old Stephanie Nickel Boykin is the woman who first fired at officers while they carried out an eviction letter at Brickell First Apartments in the area of Southwest Gulf Street and First Avenue. Anybody sitting out there thinking, okay, where the hell is that? That's across from the first Publix down on Brickell Avenue, effectively like Coral Way. Uh, again, going back to the story, according to someone familiar with the eviction, Boykin had been squatting in an apartment on the 22nd floor for over a year. 
Mr. Fackler, before you comment, let me just remind everybody, um, we have a pandemic going on, which we all know. We also have a moratorium on evictions and foreclosures. We've been talking about how many people basically have been able to stay in their place forever and ever and ever, but there's only there's certain restrictions that say who can be evicted and who can't be evicted. It's not across the board. Um, obviously, stress level is high because of the pandemic, because of the financial situation, and now because of the possibility of evictions. But this is taking it over the edge. Uh, is it not, Mr. Fackler? Yeah, absolutely. Um, listen, I don't think there's a moratorium on squatters. I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the details of the of, of the initiatives, but um, yeah, this is this was there was a lot of shocking things about this article. Um, I'm assuming there's a lot more squatters out there, so I don't know how <laughs> what's going to happen going forward. But in this case, you know, this this woman was squatting for over a year. I mean, it didn't really say was she ever a the tenants, but she was literally in the building on the 22nd floor. Uh, she actually had a couple of dogs. I mean, she, you know, she acted somewhat normal while she was there. But um, the response is what got me. The response was you got all these um, um, guys coming in with big body armor and shields. And, you know, it's like uh, why, why were they dressed in such high, um, you know, in, intense, intensely um, – Uniforms, you know, with uh, in this situation, did they get? Did they have some notice, some advance notice that this woman was carrying a gun? It didn't really go into that, but it was very dramatic, obviously. Um, and obviously, being in the Brickell area, it's uh, it's an upscale area, so you're not going to expect to have squatters living on the 22nd floor. But after people read this article, I think they're going to be looking to see if there's any more squatter activity in their buildings. Yeah, and, and, and David, on a side note, um, a couple days later, a woman jumped from her balcony on Brickell. They haven't exactly said why, um, but basically there's been a lot of havoc in and around break, break the Brickell Avenue area. David, um, as you're reporting out these articles, um, you know, you, you got two sides to this eviction in this, uh, this moratorium. One is the tenants who, you know, basically they're dealing with the pandemic, um, but they are getting, some of them are getting, many of them are getting federal relief or state relief or even city and county relief. But then you also have the landlords who don't seem to be getting any kind of relief whatsoever. So how do you, uh, you know, what, 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 how do you navigate through this? This seems like a very, um, it, you know, difficult time, and the fuse has been lit because, um, as of this point, it looks like in July they're going to lift the moratorium. Uh, I would say I think it's probably going to be lifted at the end of the third quarter. Um, but what, uh, what what do you make of it, David? What, what, what are your sources telling you? Well, I, I mean, clearly the – I mean, this is a very you know tough situation because you have someone who I mean, this woman was squatting in this high-end, high-rise uh, you know con- condo apartment you know for a year, and you know she obviously was riding you know the moratorium wave because you know, on the state level the governor continued to extend the moratoriums month by month. And then, of course, you have the CDC moratorium on the federal level, you know, that has been continued. So I think, you know, there, from a psychological standpoint, I think a, a lot of people who are in financial difficulty, um, you know, got a, a, level, a degree of comfort that they were going to be able to stay because, you know, these these renewals of moratoriums were almost automatic. And at one point, you know, chief judges uh, in the various judicial circuits uh, uh, just flat out ordered the their judges to uh, stop processing uh, foreclosure cases <clears throat> and and not to issue any orders, uh, you know, to the local sheriffs uh, who are dispatched uh, to go into these very dicey situations. So, like, 
you know, it's, it's, I mean, not knowing anything about this case, uh, you know, individually, it's, um, it's hard to fathom how, you know, someone could hold on to an apartment, uh, that, and these are, you know, these are high-end apartments. I mean, it's a, they're not a thousand dollar a month apartments. Um, so I, I can't imagine that, uh, any combination of, uh, you know, federal stimulus and unemployment benefits are going to allow a person to hang on uh, to an apartment of that stature for very long. Um, and then, of course, there are any number of people who are renting single-family homes around South Florida. <clears throat> and, you know, that's, uh, and, you know, there's a significant uh, price attached to that. And, and even though they are getting federal aid, um, uh, you know, the, the rent. Uh, that they owe don't go away. Uh, they keep building up over time. So it's it's, it's not just uh, the latest month's rent. It's uh, probably multiple months of rent. So I'm I'm really surprised that um, um, I, I I'm not you know since I'm not operating in Miami Dade anymore, I'm not sure what the court system had in mind when you know they uh, essentially allowed uh, the eviction warrants uh, to be served again. Um, but, you know, clearly these guys had to have had, these police you know, clearly had to have had some sort of intelligence that, I mean, the woman with the squad are number one, uh, mm -hmm. with the expectation of uh, ownership probably in, many, in her head, and uh, uh, you know, whether or not they had intelligence that she was armed, uh, I guess, is anybody's guess, but um, uh, it's all full time still. Um, you know, everybody keeps on saying that the economy is recovering, but there are upwards of 10 million people around the country uh, who are unemployed. In the state of Florida, there are, there are more than half a million people who are either unemployed and they're looking for jobs, uh, and maybe a couple hundred thousand or 300,000 more people who have just dropped out of the workforce for one reason or another uh, for child care purposes, or or they've just flat out, you know, given up, or, you know, maybe they're training for a different type of an occupation. So a lot of variables in play right now and uh, um, you know law enforcement and the judicial system have to use uh, and the landlords you know who you know, obviously have to be sympathetic to them too because you know they're holding property that they can't pay for <laughs> and they can't pay mortgage design if they're not collecting the rent so it's it's a real vicious uh, circle and it's uh, it's going to take a lot of uh, due care going forward until you know a lot of these people you know, get out of their financial, their personal financial crisis. Now, now we, we have said it before in this podcast, there was an article that came out and um, it was in the Miami Herald. It said between March and December of 2020, there had been 50,000 eviction um, filings in the state of Florida that basically were on hold. Um, I don't know how many have been filed in 2021. Just to give people context, um, I haven't seen any number or any story that actually numbers it and says it county by county by county, but just to give you a little bit of context. The other point I would sort of throw out to everybody is I remember during the last, during the Great Recession, we were going after uh, condos, and you would go into condos back then. This is when people were, you know, the, the ninja loans, no income, no asset verification, blah, 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 blah. And we would walk into units, and you had squatters. You'd have realtors who were taking listings 
um, from uh, banks. These were REO properties, real estate owned. They were been foreclosed to banks with title. These people would get the listing, and they, you know, they were basically living. They had blow up mattresses. They'd have their clothes set up. There were also uh, situations that I had a, an agent who was working for me. He got approached by one of the numerous porn companies that's based down here in Miami, and they were willing to give him two grand for a day to do a photo or a video shoot in air quotes in this particular vacant unit. Um, so, so as a result, anybody who goes down on Brickle and if they take your photograph. Uh, to get into a building, that, a lot of that came because of the squatters and the stuff that was happening in 2008, 2009, 2010, at least in my opinion, as somebody who was, you know, actively playing down there uh, at that time. So, you know, this is something we've seen before, but I can't say we've seen a shooting uh, before. And you also got to wonder, what about the police? The police are going in there with these evictions. They don't know what they're stepping into. This That's is going right. to be wow, you know. Yeah. It's a real, real, real difficult situation. Um, okay, <laughs> story Story number five, David, we'll start off with you. Um, this is coming out of the Miami Herald, and let me sort of set the scene. Basically, the way I kind of see it is we have the Everglades. The Everglades are in the center of the state uh, in terms of what's still there. you got Lake Okeechobee, and I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist, but basically Lake Okeechobee used to flood out, dump into the Everglades. The water would flow southward. It would dump into Florida Bay, which is where the Florida Keys are. Because of development, lo and behold, land was reclaimed, you know, reclaimed Everglades, and we built a bunch of different uh, properties, uh, you know, over the course of the last century or so. And what ultimately happened is we went out to that limit, which is known as the urban development boundary line, effectively the UDB. And, and since everything was built out, many developers bounced back, and they started building vertical because they couldn't get the horizontal land anymore, which I would argue, drove, you know, inspired a lot of the, the condo development that we sort of have going on in the coastal part of South Florida. So uh, that being said, is my history. David, let me read the headline and a couple of graphs and then uh, get you a comment. Miami-Dade Commissioner says, time to expand the urban development boundary near air base. So they want to move, move the UDB. And David, here's the first couple of graphs. New legislation by a county commissioner in South Miami-Dade seeks to expand industrial projects in the farmland around Homestead Air, air Reserve Base that currently reserved for agriculture and houses built on large lots. Five months in the office, Commissioner Keone McGee has proposed a landmark loosening of building restrictions in his district by expanding the urban development boundary line, best known as the UDB, into what he said would be about 700 acres of farmland south of the Florida Turnpike. David, if you start uh, moving the UDB, that means you've got to lay infrastructure. That means you have to do a whole variety of different things. You've been down here since the 80s. Um, how has this happened before? How does this play out? And what do you make of this latest attempt to move the UDB? Well, I guess, I don't know what type of campaign contributions he's getting and from whom, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, yet another, it's yet another round of, uh, of expansion folly. I, I mean, how many times have we you know, heard about uh, the eastward hoe movement, you know, where people uh, were coming back east to, as you said, build vertically, urban infill, you know, tearing down the old and, and building up the new. But uh, down there, I think the key word uh, in this case is industrial. I mean, there was an effort being made to try to uh, uh, ex expand, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, I guess industrial means uh, you've got the potential for, you know, establishing distribution centers. You know, maybe he wants another Amazon distribution full fulfillment center down there. Or maybe they want to, uh, you know, start some <clears throat> minor manufacturing uh, and assembly, you know, type of a process, uh, um, you know, because that uh, there aren't there aren't too many places uh, for that type of activity up this way because uh, there's no <clears throat> there's not enough land. Uh, but 
so you really can't build vertically very well if you're in the industrial game, can we? So it's, um, you know, I would imagine there's some, and not having, you know, deeply researched this, I would imagine there's some special interests who are, you know, pushing the buttons to try to, you know, get more uh, expansion, you know, for this particular purpose. But, uh, I mean, Homestead, you know, obviously has, you know, come back pretty well since, uh, you know, the Hurricane Andrew days when <clears throat> the storm flattened the entire region and chased uh, thousands of people uh, northward and, and destroyed the economy. I, I guess it must have taken maybe eight to ten years for it to recover. And, but by the same token, um, you know, we're trying desperately to preserve the Everglades and what's left of it and to have uh, <clears throat> have uh, you know the preservation of the of the water supply and uh, you know the prevention of algae and and to you know essentially follow through on the preservation program that's been uh, you know quite literally uh, disrupted by um, you know one you know, politically driven act after another. So it's uh, I wish it wouldn't happen. I, I, you know, certainly there are powerful economic interests. Um, you know, this region is growing by leaps and bounds again, you know, due to uh, intensive migration from other parts of the country. And I would imagine that, uh, you know, there's an opportunity down there to expand the industrial base, so to speak, and, uh, you know, add some economic activity <clears throat> to an area that, uh, you know, from an agricultural standpoint, you know, agricultural employment is going down and, uh uh, it's it's kind of sad to see the you know ag business in that region being constricted by you know more and more developments and and more uh, uh, you know economic activity that's going to you know phase out agriculture eventually. Uh, I know up this way, it has, I mean, the citrus industry went by the boards uh, here in the Broward and South Palm Beach County areas, uh, you know, probably about 20 years ago, and um, it, uh, it, it's hard to imagine that, uh, you know, ag interests are going to marshal the political power to, you know, deflect some, a proposal like this, but um, we'll just have to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's a great point. And and for people who don't really know the homestead area that we're talking about, um, the United States used to have an Air Force base there, an air base, and um, uh, David, what was it, Cold War days? Uh, that's how the U.S. was going to respond, uh, especially with Cuba. Remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? Uh, things right. like that. So there was an air, air base down there. Uh, I think it was President Clinton shut it down uh, or so uh, after Hurricane Andrew. Then there was talk about turning it into like a, a, com a commercial or an all-cargo type of right. um, uh, airport. I, am yeah. I getting that right, David? Because you, you used to yeah. talk about aviation in the 80s. Right, and the thing is, uh, but um, there, I think that reserve base is still used for military purposes, isn't it? Um, but yeah. uh, um, the thing is, um, I don't think the Air Force has ever wanted to. Uh, I mean, there's still an air reserve base down there, and I, I don't think okay. that uh, I, I don't think that the uh, Air Force has ever really wanted to let it go completely. Um, you know, given all. Okay. But you're right. There were any number of commercial initiatives to try to uh, commercialize it and, you know, have some cargo operations going there. But there's still an air, revert, air reserve component, um, you know, at that base right now. And um, so I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, the type of thing they envisioned 20 years ago is, is going to come to fruition at this point. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. 
Yeah, John, uh, let me read a couple graphs and then get your comments. Um, uh, Eve Sample, she's the director of the Friends of the Everglade Advocacy Group, uh, said that the commissioner's proposal was troubling. Here's her quote. I'm concerned about it. It's alarming, she said. What I think is happening here is there is a scramble, a scramble underway to develop around the Homestead Air Base. It looks like a full-scale assault on land use planning. And, John, before you respond, let me just remind everybody that at one time I think it was Disney who wanted to build a water park or some sort of park out there. And I think the Collier family, uh, John, an area used to live, um, used to live on the Southwest in Southwest Florida. They had actually proposed, I think, trading some mineral rights or something, some kind of development rights in the, in the Everglades, uh, for the ability to build some sort of tourist type of destination. And the idea was it's between Miami and the Florida Keys and they could tap into all the traffic that drives back and forth. So all that being said, John, how do you weigh the environmental versus the need to create jobs? Because keep in mind, we still have a lot of people unemployed in the state of Florida. What say you, Sean? Well, I mean, look, um, th- there's a ton of ag land there, and it's prime. I think David is absolutely right. It's prime for development for industrial uses because the, the, the sort of the jewel of all of this is the homestead air reserve base and and um amazon has already planned to build a huge new distribution center i mean i think they're looking at having um cargo uh cargo flowing into that air base and um being shipped you know through various um uh warehouses and distribution centers because that's where the land is and honestly i mean it makes sense for uh county commissioners because ag land i mean ag land is not is not uh doesn't have much taxable value but if you put industrial use there i mean they're going to generate a ton more taxes than they would with agricultural land so i mean it's it, it makes total sense and that's where that's where the land is i mean there's no other land you know and and honestly the the that whole homestead uh homestead area with uh with a huge uh huge air base that could be used for cargo and shipping uh, i mean it makes total sense that this would become an industrial hub for south florida yeah 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 well and and guys let me just throw this out there and if anybody wants to respond we've, we've had a lot of talk about new yorkers we had a lot of talk about californians all moving to south florida um, you know, if you go out to California, they recycle everything. They're worried about, really worried about Mother Earth. Um, not so much here in the state of Florida. The recycling program, huh? Does anybody actually recycle? And even if you do, it's almost like they charge you to recycle. Um, I'm wondering, do you think some influence of all these Californians, let's say, or New Yorkers who supposedly have come here, do you think that might change the dynamic of how this argument is fought in terms of um, moving to UDB? Anybody have any thoughts? This is pure speculation, but the changing uh, political demographics because of this pandemic uh, buying frenzy. You guys think it could have an impact? Okay, I guess no one does. <laughs> so that, that's anyway. No. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know. All right. I mean, clearly, clearly, there's an effort being made to uh, you know to convert this airbase into some sort of a. Uh, you know, commercial. You know, add on to add on to uh, you know the, the commercial stuff. That's or I mean, the FedEx has something there. Amazon is nearby, and uh, you know, there's a question as to I guess as we speak right now, there there's a you know there's an effort being made to try to uh, you know get more of a commercial type of a <clears throat> of an operation in, into that airbase, uh, which in turn, you know, I mean, you start running cargo. Uh, heavy duty, you know, cargo loads in and out of that base, 
I mean, you're not going to be. I mean, how are you, how are you going to ship it out of there? Um, I mean, I mean, we're we're at the distribution uh, point going to be to uh, you know marshal the material, uh, assemble it, and and maybe repack it for shipment elsewhere. I so I, I mean, it's it's been a very it looks like a very vague you know type of a proposal to you know put forth a, some sort of an industrial based. Uh, um, you know, set of activities that, uh, um, you know, you put FedEx, as I said, Amazon, <laughs> and, you know, it, it's got uh, the future written all over the place. Um, uh, you know, that, that's where they're, that's where the county powers and that's where, you know, these, that's where these, uh, you know, commercial interests are, are, are looking to go. So, well, you know, and I would, I would throw out to anybody, anybody who's thinking about going down there investing, keep in mind two critical points. One, we have a nuclear reactor down there called Turkey Point. And point number two, you have our landfill. Anything can get dumped there effectively well. It's not supposed to, but it does. It's called Mount Treshmore. So um, if you're downwind, it's not a very good smell from a, from a residential perspective. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, story number six. Let's go to Jean. Jean, this is coming out of the real deal. Headline. Developer Guild Desert partners with Bentley for luxury condo tower in Sunny Isles Beach. Subhead 749-foot tower will be more than 60 stories tall with 200 condos and a patented car elevator. Uh, first couple of crafts, uh, Jean, and then I'll let you get a comment. Developer Guild Desert, known for his luxury condo towers and exotic car collection, is partnering with Bentley for his next project. Desert Development will build a Bentley Motors-branded skyscraper on an oceanfront site in Sunny Isles Beach. Sales are expected to launch later this year, as early as October. Desert told a relay of the real deal. It will mark the first Bentley residential tower in the world. Jean, what do you, what do you make of that? <laughs> it's aimed straight bullseye at the at the Russian market. I mean, Russians love Sunny Isles. They love brands, Gucci and and Bentley and Porsche, Porsche and any luxury brand. They love it. Armani. <laughs> uh, yes, the Russians love that stuff, and they love Sunny Isles, and they've always been big investors in Sunny Isles, and this is aimed at squarely at them and and he's going to hit a bullseye with them <laughs> i love it beautiful beautiful mr fackler um according to the article construction expected to begin in early 2023 and be completed in 2026 desert secured height approval in 2019 for what will be the tallest tower in sunny isles beach um Mr. Fackler, what do you make of that? Is this the symbolic beginning of the roaring 20s for South Florida um, economy and real estate? What say you? Yeah, I think uh, Desert is banking on uh, the long-term prospects of luxury market as he as he has in the past. His timing is, you know, um, really targeting uh, that um, that period where we'll be post-pandemic. There'll be you know, sort of like the Roaring Twenties type of uh, feel. He's also uh, banking on his uh, brand expertise. Also, the fact that he's a car buff himself. I mean, he's got that warehouse of exotic cars, so this is right up his alley on several fronts. Okay, so if he's going to build, he's proposing 200 units, and he says construction, he's hoping construction begins in 2023. That means effectively he's got, what would that be? you got nine months or so left in 2021. you got another 12 months. So we're talking north of 20 months to sell 200 units. 
Um, do you think he's being a little conservative, Mr. Fackler, and how quickly these things are going to sell? Or is he just sort of flying a weather balloon to sort of get a, a sense as to whether or not the time is right, make the announcement, try to, uh, yeah. you know, lack of a better word, cock block anybody yeah. else from planting a flag uh, to go forward yeah. in that very competitive Sunny Isles Beach market? Yeah, it's more, I think he's more floating the weather balloon. Uh, he's really testing the market to see what, you know, before he goes forward, you know, how much traction he's going to get, how many pre-sales he's going to get. And um, that's probably, you know, it, it's brilliant from a marketing because uh, he's, he's generating interest. Um and he's generating it now as the pandemic is still roaring. So I think it's going to, you know, he's banking on uh, everybody, this pent-up demand going forward, uh, particularly the luxury market. You know, that luxury market is, is uh, sure to take off once we're post-pandemic. So uh, I think he's, uh, he's, he's, he's in his comfort zone. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, but Peter, didn't you didn't you restart? Peter, Peter, didn't you just recently report that there was like a forty month supply of luxury condos in Sunny Isles? <laughs> this, this this is true. If you go based on how many units are for sale and what the absorption pace is for twenty twenty, you're looking at years of supply. But the argument that's made by the the air quotes luxury broker, and I always argue, what's luxury? Nobody has a definition for it, so we call it a million dollars or more. Uh, argument is, is, you know, people are richer than God, and they want new, and they will not settle for the fact that someone else has lived in that unit. So maybe Mr. Desert is going ahead and playing to that. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> well, exactly. I don't know. Uh, up this way, I, I just, um, I mean, there in my building up here in Northeast Fort Lauderdale, the, uh, every single penthouse uh, in the building is, uh, I hear drilling above me, just two stories, story. I'm not at the penthouse level yet, but I'm close enough to uh, hear drilling and pounding and uh, moving things around up there. <laughs> every single penthouse owner uh, has a revamp going, and they're all aiming for that brass ring to uh, um, you know, renovate the place and, and hope that they can get uh, a high price uh, you know, after they put it on the market. Uh, I guess they must be banking on the fact that, you know, there's not enough new condo supply in, in South Florida uh, that, you know, they'd be able to uh, create, you know, some sort of replication uh, of, uh, of, a, of a luxury place, uh, an upgraded, you know, luxury place that's then <clears throat> in play for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Um, uh, I'm amazed by some of the prices that uh, uh, for used condos uh, that you know people are getting in this particular building, as well as which is a 20-story, 230-unit building near, right on the west bank of the Intercoastal Waterway. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if there's not, uh, if, you know, if the condo supply isn't flying off the shelf faster than we think it is. <clears throat> yeah. Good, good point. Good point. Um, I, I guess what I would say is um, next time you get in that elevator and you look at the floors, you're trying to figure out where you want to go, and you see PH, when the economy is humming, that stands for penthouse. When the economy right. is not humming, that stands for poorhouse. So, guys, let's go ahead and take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, I'm going to ask the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. This is Peter Zaluski of the Condo Vultures podcast. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And I wanted to alert you that if you have a property that you're looking to sell in the Tri-County, South Florida area, I would encourage you to reach out to Jenny Hortus, a licensed real estate broker with CVRRealty.com. She's my partner. She's been in the business for uh, north of 15 years. 
More importantly, she knows the market. She knows how to get a deal done. And she also realizes that it's more important to get a price that you can accept and sell the property rather than to hold firm on some price that's never going to be achieved and ultimately languish on the market. So if you're looking to do, do a deal that you want a skilled expert who can help you sell a property, reach out to Jenny Huertas at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit her website, cvrrealty.com. If you're listening to this podcast, think about who else is. If you want to reach that crowd, which tends to be investors, buyers, developers, lenders, why not advertise on the Common Cultures podcast? To do so, give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm Peter Zalewski. This is the segment where I ask the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction, ask them to pull out that crystal ball and tell us what is coming down the pike. John Fackler, let's start off with you. You're typically the most, uh, uh, let's say, entertaining prediction uh, each and every week. Um, what, what do you see coming down the pike uh, this week? Well, uh, this prediction is more recent. I know my, my, my predictions are generally like about a year out, so... Uh, Hopefully this one will okay. This one will, uh my prediction is that the inflation rate um is going to uh, come back in a roaring way to pre pandemic levels. Um I know the uh, Federal Reserve chair was talking about it this issue this past weekend and he's expecting that as well. But um one of the things that was interesting about his comments was um there's a there's a it was being pegged to what's called the services inflation. And the services, as we all know, is something that's really been, uh, you know, tied down here because of the pandemic, travel, leisure, uh, any kind of services. So apparently the services inflation index is going to be, have, be a real driver going forward to the overall uh, inflation index. And as people know, on uh, Tuesday, I'm not sure if this, Podcast will be posted by then, but there's the consumer. No, it will not. Index. It will okay. not. It'll be posted on Wednesday, and don't bust my chops about posting it quicker. Okay, because there's only so that's much okay. the guy can do. Go ahead. It's okay, <laughs> but that that report will come out. Consumer price index, which will you know give an indication of where we are with that. But my prediction is going forward that um, because this is so closely tied to the services inflation uh, index, that that number will be much, much higher by the end of, the, of Q2. Um, and we only got a couple of months to go before that happens. So I think we're going to see a, an inflation, a general inflation rate much higher than predicted by the end of the second quarter. Now, now, Mr. Packer, just a follow-up question. You talk about services, and basically the cost of everything go, is going to go up. Um, does this come from the fact that you recently took an Uber, which used to call you, cost you six bucks, and now you're dropping fifteen for that same ride? Is that actually where this is coming from, or um, are you suddenly an economist? I, I think I'm, I'm definitely not an economist, but yeah, I've been affected by a lot of these services uh, uh, changes here lately. And, and in fact, today was a good example. You know, your typical local. Uh, uh, Uber drive will cost you six, seven bucks, depending on the time of day or how busy it is. And uh, I don't know how this floating scale of theirs works, because it's a little confusing. But that number could go as high as twenty bucks for a local drive. Wow! Uh, this was, yeah, this was never seen before. And it, it's funny if you wait ten minutes later and, and, and re, you know recheck the Uber, 
that price will go all the way down. I mean, I saw it go down from 20 to 6 today, just in the afternoon, within an hour. So I don't know, you know, <clears throat> that's a, it's, it's an example, perhaps, uh, of, of uh, consumer price changes. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of scary going forward. We'll have to keep an eye on it. John, um, what, what do you see coming down the pike? And let's exclude price gouging. What's uh, what say you, John? <laughs> yeah, my my burrito, my burrito at Chipotle cost two more two more bucks than it did the last time I went to Chipotle. So there you yeah. go. See? Yeah. So well, that's why the stock is burrito, burrito inflation. Right? So um, <laughs> my my prediction. Forget the Big Mac factor, <laughs> my, right? John, yeah, you got really. the big factor with the economist. You got the burrito Chipotle factor. <laughs> well, my my prediction is that we're going to see more projects um, uh, be crowdfunded um, as as um, lenders continue to remain sort of tight uh, with money. Uh, we've seen uh, several projects in Miami um, start uh, with crowdfunding, and um, you're dealing with um, uh, sort of uh, the general public. Um, personally, I think it's a terrible idea because you're dealing with a lot of unsophisticated <laughs> investors, and the commercial real estate is not for the faint of heart. It's very risky business, and uh, crowd, I think crowdfunding is a bad idea for developers um, because you're dealing with unsophisticated investors. And if there are any problems, then you're going to end up with a bunch of lawyers knocking on your door. Um, and, uh, but I think we're going to see more of these because lenders um, are still quite cautious about funding any projects, especially with, um, with uh, the overheating of values as they are. And um, I, th I think that uh, more developers are going to turn to crowdfunding, but I think they're going to be taking additional risk to do that. But we're going to see more of those, and um, just got to watch it. Interesting point. And, you know, what I always tell everybody, and I used to, when I worked for David, um, over at the Daily Business Review, I used to tell people, or what I used to say, or what I learned from that is, don't listen to what the developer says. Don't listen to what the investor says. Don't listen to what the uh, broker says. Listen to what the banker doesn't say or says, because the banker is the one controlling the spigot, and if they shut that thing down, the market changes rapidly, and a lot of times you're not even aware of it until weeks or months later. So um, that's very interesting um, uh, uh, prediction, Sean. Um, David, why don't, what, what do you see coming down the pike? Well, I see, uh, I guess we're already seeing it. Employers are, are offering up a lot of incentives to get the remote backer, uh, the remote workers back into the workplace. Um, Robert, Half, Robert Half, the uh, national staffing company, did a survey that found that one in three workers that they surveyed who are working remotely do not want to go back to the office. Uh, which in turn is going to put a lot of pressure on employers to uh, incentivize incentivize the return, you know, whether it's outright, you know, cash or special workplace conditions at the office. Already, uh, employers are, <clears throat> while they're not mandating uh, vaccines for COVID, they are through encouragement and moral suasion, uh, you know, giving folks, uh, uh, you know, a couple of days of uh, paid time off. So. Uh, once they get that second shot, uh, a lot of people, including myself, uh, got floored by that second shot. Uh, that wow, they'll they'll be able to recover at home uh, a day or so after they get that second shot. Uh, but uh, it's it's really going to become a problem for you know the office market because uh, clearly, uh, I mean, I think 
uh, employers, uh, you know, oh, during the entire pandemic, um, you know, workplace conditions have altered communication lines and technology have been adjusted to uh, ensure that work can get done uh, remotely. And uh, a lot of people have gotten comfortable with that. And in turn, uh, you're going to see some downtowns, uh, although, you know, they're starting to fill up again. Um, there are a lot of echoes in the hallways of some of the high-rise office buildings. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's gonna, there's going to be a, um, a major effort on the part of um, at least major employers to, you know, try to, uh, um, in some way, shape, or form, entice, uh, you know, the remote workers back <clears throat> into the office. Because uh, here, looking at the same survey, um, a lot of these workers, if they're forced to come back, they'll just go for another job somewhere else. Uh, because, you know, there are a lot of uh, industrial sectors that that uh, have been doing, you know, very well, and they're rebounding a lot more quickly than some of the consumer service industries. And <clears throat> if you've got skills, and uh, you, if you've got skills, you have options. And uh, so, you know, to a large degree, employers are are uh, back on their heels a bit <clears throat> because their employees are in, in a much better position to call the shots. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And yeah, who who the hell wants to go back into an office regularly if you've had this, you know, you know, you know, if one of the benefits of the pandemic, one of the few is that you were able to have a quality of life because you were working from home. Although some say, you, you know, not, not, now you sleep at work, but uh, that's sort of a different story. Um, my prediction, UDB, Urban Development Boundary Line, we talked about it. Uh, that is that line that separates the Everglades from the developable land. Perfect, clear example of that would be a place like Weston and Broward County. You can be in this luxury gated community. You can cross the road. And next thing you know, you got the, Everg uh, the Everglades and you got the alligators. So my prediction is the UDB will not be moved. The Urban Development Boundary Line will not be moved. Other groups have tried it in the past, including large home builders, as well as a guy who owns a large mall up in northeast Miami-Dade County. They have failed to get it moved. Um, I don't think it's going to get moved this time. But what I do think is going to happen is as we get into the presidential election, the next go around, I think the environmental aspect is going to become a bigger and bigger issue in the state of Florida, especially for the Democrats, given the fact that we have so many Californians and New Yorkers who have moved down here. So uh, you guys are getting a bonus. bonus uh, question, prediction number one, UDB will be refused. It will be denied. And prediction number two is it will become a hotbed political issue uh, for the next presidential election where the Democrats that's a Republican fight for the ever-important state of Florida. So, guys, let's go ahead. We'll take our commercial break. On the other side break, we're going to get into the comments. After a one-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we're bringing back the condo correction tours. I'm Peter Zalewski, the host of this podcast. I'm also the one who will be leading these tours. These are three-hour tours where we go to a particular neighborhood. We walk the neighborhood. We talk about market conditions. We look and talk about buildings. We also talk about what's going on in those particular buildings. Everyone who attends the tour, uh, they're given a handout talking about the, what's the current state of that particular market from a buyer as well as a seller perspective. It's real heavy on the information in terms of the handout, but it's also really uh, interesting and insightful based on the stories behind the buildings and how they are performing. So I encourage you, if you're in the market for a condominium, if you're trying to work to get listings in the condominium, this is probably a tour that you want to uh, take. It's straight talk, much like our podcast, and chances are you're going to enjoy it. You're probably going to want to attend all of the tours going forward. To get a schedule, of our upcoming tours, please go to condovultures.eventbrite.com. Again, condovultures.eventbrite.com. 
Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm Peter Zalewski, your host. I've got David Lyons, the financial writer over at the South Florida Sun Sentinel. I got John Gruce, who has a public relations marketing firm called Gruce Communications. He used to be a journalist, and I also have John Fackler. He used to write about white collar crime for the South Florida Business Journal. Now he does public relations and marketing, primarily ready to healthcare and wellness. Uh, Mr. Fackler, this listener to go ahead and sound off. Uh, they can ask a question, they can compliment, they can complain, uh, they can make a statement. Any and all comments we receive, we go ahead and we, we uh, discuss. We read them on the podcast and we discuss them at this moment in time. So um, if anybody does want to send a comment, by the way, send an email to inquiry at uh, condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Mr. Fackler, um, I want you to read them, and we have two comments this week. Um, what do we got, uh, who are they from, and what are they saying? Okay, our first comment is from Sonny in Aventura. Um, Sonny, uh, her subject is regarding the feedback the feedback on webinars. So I'm not really sure if this is tied to uh, the podcast or tied to kind of vultures. Not sure what she means by webinars. No, 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 John. I think I think Sonny misspoke instead of webinar. I think she meant podcast because we don't do any oh, okay. video. We just do audio. Okay. All right, her comment is that she feels it would be better if they are shorter, more concise, uh, perhaps 15 minutes. That's something uh, that can be heard while driving to and from uh, wherever their uh, um, destination is. Uh, perhaps a short two- to three-minute maximum intro for the speaker and to get the heart of the matter, heart of the subject matter. I think that would greatly improve your subscribership. So... Wow, David, John, John, you hear that? You guys are you guys are um, uh, bloviating too much. Bloviating too much. Anybody? I I have my thoughts. Anybody want to comment on that, or um, or do you guys just want me to answer? Okay. Well, uh, the Fair public the, the public clearly um, you know doesn't want to hear long winded winded renditions. Uh, so but that's the responsibility of an editor. You know, we pre-tape these, and you can uh, uh, winnow it down to the lowest common denominator, which is what people want. They're busy. <laughs> fair, fair point, John. Uh, Mr. Fackler, you guys have a comment? Nope. Very concise, Mr. No, Pat. I don't. John? <laughs> okay. Um, well, well right, I so can see her. I can, look, I can, look I, see, I see her point, and the fact of the matter is that um, sometimes you don't have an hour or an hour and a half to listen to a podcast, and, and you, you want to shorten sweet, and you want the information right away. That's, that's how we consume media now. We, you know, we're, we're in bite-sized modes, you know. We don't have – we don't have the time or the patience to get more than, you know, X amount of media and we're on to the next thing. So, you know, that's something to consider. And, uh, you know, um, uh, certainly, uh, empathize with, with what she's saying. No, no, absolutely. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, let me give you the other perspective. The other perspective is if I'm watching Netflix and every, all of us were forced to watch Netflix, I won't watch a series that doesn't have more than two seasons because I want multiple um, uh, episodes. I want the storyline to be played out. And the same thing goes for me for podcasts. I won't listen to a podcast that is less than an hour simply because anybody can hustle for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But 
as time goes by, you really start to expose who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't know what they're talking about, which is the beauty of YouTube. A 15-minute video where someone gets on there and they spout off about a gentleman who has a pig farm in the Philippines, and lo and behold, he's figured out though, that there is a sex ring going on in a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., and he puts out these short videos, and everybody sort of follows it. That's not what I'm after um, with these podcasts. And I'm not saying I'm right, but what I'm saying is, you know, the longer you have a conversation, the more you can sort of think out ideas, you can discuss things, you can get into the heart and the detail. And, you know, and at the end of the day, this um, shouldn't hopefully feel like it's, it's required listening. This should be something you want to listen to, and it should be entertaining, hopefully. Um, I tend to listen to podcasts when I'm out walking, when I am driving, when I'm cooking, uh, when I'm cleaning the house, any and all of that type of stuff. So that's kind of what we're after. I guess we can work to make it shorter. And, you know, granted, they, 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 they do go a little bit longer, but we're trying to keep it within an hour. Um, can we get it down to 45 minutes? Potentially, yes. Um, but, but the thing is, I think there's a lot of good content out there. And unfortunately, so much of the content we're consuming right now is short, quick hits where somebody reads a headline, they read the first graph of an article and they think they know what it says, but they lack the context. So as things go on, um, you know, it's not about knowing the data. Everybody can know the data. It's about interpreting the data and understanding the data. So that's kind of where I've been trying to head. And, you know, listen, funny, uh, point taken. We'll try to make it a little bit more concise, but as you can see from my explanation, um, you know, I'm not that concise. So, but I will That's work on it. I make you all a promise. We'll try to work on it. What What was that, David? No, that was long too. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, someone who's not long is Ilya. Um, uh, Ilya submitted another comment. This is comment number two. Ilya is a regular listener uh, who comments uh, each and every week about things going on. John, um, give us some of the finer points of Ilya's comments. Yeah, sure. Uh, Ilya um, had several uh, several uh, comments. Uh, the first, I guess, had to do with my profile. Um, he said, this is from Podcast 123, I believe. Uh, Ilya says, this is excellent. Should have been done much earlier. I thought that he, w meaning me, was a plumber or machinist working at a boiler room. <laughs> and that's kind of funny because we've done plenty of mentions of the boiler room uh, activity of mine. Um, he says, note to myself, John has a talent attracting shady characters somehow. <laughs> uh, also, Ilya mentioned um, that Shenandoah is the new Gables. The prices are insane. I'm not sure exactly how that uh, um, was mentioned in the podcast, but that's a true fact. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know, Shenandoah is a neighborhood located between uh, Greater Delta, Miami, and Coral Gables. Uh, that's an area that John's often referring to because he's living in that general area. It's effectively like yeah. a little Havana. Uh, it's just a little bit farther, closer to the water. Uh, John, any other points um, uh, from Ilya? And keeping in mind, yeah, Sonny wants us to be brief. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep it as brief as I can. Uh, this has to do with, I believe, podcast number 122. Uh, Ilya makes the point that summer's coming. It's going to be hot and wet uh, with the possibility of a hurricane or two. I noticed they mentioned they upped the hurricane predictions for this coming season. Uh, so he's asking, are we going to see a slowdown uh, and perhaps even uh, get an outflow out of, uh, for, for, uh, from out of status? In other words, coming in to buy, is it going to uh, affect that market? What do you think, Peter? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know. Uh, David, John, you guys want to comment on that? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. We're going to stop. Yeah, you know, that we do, got all the do you remember? 
Yeah. Do you do you remember um, Hank Fishkind, the economist? Um, he he's he's yeah. talked about hurricanes and the impact of hurricanes on Florida and specifically on real estate. And what he was saying was that actually, um, unless unless you're in an area that the eye hits. Um, like all the other areas surrounding it, uh, really don't get impacted uh, economically by a hurricane. And in fact, um, the damage that a, that a hurricane creates actually uh, brings in a lot of economic activity because there's all kinds of rebuilding and and it brings in all kinds of investors who are trying to look for deals, you know. And um, yeah, it's really very interesting to see actually what happens um, after a hurricane. And it's kind of counterintuitive. You think, well, a hurricane hits Florida, everybody's going to leave, no one's going to come here. But actually, in in a lot of cases, the opposite happens. It's very very interesting. Wow, that, yeah, that is an interesting point. Yeah, yeah tragedy breeds uh, opportunity. So. Um, uh, you know, South Dade came back uh, stronger than ever after. I mean, it took a few years, uh, starting with the so-called We Will Rebuild campaign of the 19, early 1990s. But uh, um, it, it was interesting to see how the South Florida economy uh, got a lot stronger after that. Um, uh, you know, I think it was a combination of migration. Yeah, and in 2004. And, yeah. Yep. Yep. So. In 2004 and 2005, we had a ton of hurricanes crisscrossed the state. I mean, that didn't stop the the boom, you know. No, it didn't. That's right. So. But but I will say though, a lot of people in the real estate industry they point to Wilma, Hurricane Wilma in 2005, as the moment in time when everything got put on hold. If you guys remember, it came from the west. Uh, John right. it came from your neck of the woods at the time, Southwest Florida. It rolled through, created a bunch of flooding, things like that, mm. electricity outlets. Um, and then as a result of that, um, many will say there was a pause in the market and the market never came back. Prices continue to go up because people were bidding it up, but the volume fell off the table, ultimately leading to what would become the Great Recession. So, well, anyways, um, uh, so, uh, yep, that is David Lyons. David's a financial writer over the South Florida Sun Sentinel. David, any final thoughts before we shut down this podcast? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, the real estate market is, is um, you know, going to continue to be a really, you know, crazy quilt uh, exercise. Uh, we're going to have continued, you know, migration into the area, uh, more competition for housing, and, um, you know, it's going to put a tremendous amount of uh, pressure on infrastructure. And, so if there's infrastructure money coming our way, uh, I hope it gets here soon because uh, there's a lot of work to do to support, <clears throat> you know, the the additional building, the additional arrivals of uh, new migrants uh, into the region. <clears throat> and thank you, David. And then that is John Gruss. John was a journalist for north of 25 years, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. Right now, John, uh, John runs a publication marketing firm called Gruss Communication. Any parting thoughts, Mr. Gruss? Yeah, I'm just glad Easter's over and the snowbirds are leaving and we get our restaurants back. <laughs> <laughs> and and then we had John Fackler. John used to write about white-collar crime as well as public trading companies based in South Florida when he was at the South Florida Business Journal. Right now he does public relations and marketing, especially related to health care and wellness. Any final thoughts, Mr. Fackler? Yeah, I hate to be a negative napop, but um, it was announced uh, today – 
um, and I should mention that today being on Monday, that there has been a 10% increase in COVID cases nationwide over past, over last week. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, announced this. So, you know, keep an eye on these COVID numbers. We're starting to see a, a mini surge, and uh, hopefully it will uh, plateau. Wow. We're talking, talking about great news on the way out, Mr. Packler. <laughs> yeah, and, right. And I'm... <laughs> And I'm Peter Zalewski. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Sorry, it's a little bit long, but uh, I think it's quality, good good quality content. Um, I want to remind you, if you're not yet a subscriber, please go ahead and uh, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you like what we're doing, leave us a comment and a rating. The more comments and ratings we get, the more uh, likely we are to spread our message and move towards accomplishing our mission, which is bringing straight talk to an overhyped real estate market. And then finally, if you have any comments for us, all these podca- all the comments we, we hear and receive from you, we're going to discuss during our reporters' roundtable. Send in email to inquiryaccountofvultures.com I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong, get inoculated so we can get back to some sort of normalcy, whatever that will be. Until next time, ciao, ciao.